Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Days after Hamas fighters invaded Israel on October 7th, and as Israelis were still in shock, grieving over the carnage and cruelty, President Joe Biden flew to Tel Aviv with a simple message. The United States, as always, is on Israel's side. For decades, we've ensured Israel's qualitative military edge. And later this week, I'm going to ask the United States Congress for an unprecedented support package for Israel's defense. We're going to keep Iron Dome fully supplied so we can continue standing sentinel over Israeli skies, saving Israeli lives. We've moved U.S. military assets to the region, including positioning the USS Ford Carrier Strike Group in the Eastern Mediterranean, with the USS Eisenhower on the way. He also issued this warning to Israel's neighbors. My message to any state or any other hostile actor, thinking about attacking Israel remains the same as it was a week ago. Don't. 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 This has always been the Joe Biden way through his decades in the Senate and now as president of the United States. He always has said the best way to influence Israel is to keep Israel as a steadfast, close ally, able to rely on U.S. support, at least publicly. But lately, there's been a change in tone from his administration, hints of frustration that the Biden bear hug isn't working. In the last few days, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, and Vice President Kamala Harris have all cautioned Israel publicly. Here's Harris. As Israel defends itself, it matters how. The United States is unequivocal. International humanitarian law must be respected. Too many innocent Palestinians have been killed. Frankly, the scale of civilian suffering and the images and videos coming from Gaza are devastating. So today, we'll scrutinize President Biden's years of ironclad public support for Israel and how he's deployed that support during the Israel-Hamas war. We'll also ask whether it's been effective at helping Israel itself and whether it's time now that Biden rethink his approach. So joining us today is Nimrod Novik. He's in Tel Aviv. He's a former senior policy advisor to Prime Minister Shimon Peres and is the Israel Fellow of the American Jewish Bipartisan Organization, the Israel Policy Forum. Mr. Novik, welcome to On Point. Thank you, Magna, for having me. Also with us today is David Hale. He's with us from Washington. He's former Undersecretary of State, Special Envoy for Middle East Peace, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, and former Ambassador to Jordan and Lebanon. He's currently a fellow at the Wilson Center and author of the forthcoming book, American Diplomacy Toward Lebanon. Ambassador Hale, welcome to you. Thank you very much, Megna. Please call me David. Well, um, I shall do that. Thank you for, for that permission. Um, let me ask you both first, and, and Nimrod Novik, let me start with you. Let's just reflect for a moment on um, those clips that we heard uh, during uh, President Biden's visit to to Israel in just you know, the first days after the terrible attack on October 7th. What did you think of his specific language that he used that day uh, when speaking to not just Prime Minister Netanyahu, but the, the press and the world at large? 
Well, I, I looked at it naturally from, from an Israeli parochial perspective, um, and there was no doubt that the chord that, that he hit uh, struck deeply in Israeli hearts. Um, he gave Israelis the uh, father figure uh, that they don't have, that we don't have domestically. Uh, he embraced us. It was the ultimate expression of his long self-identification as a non-Jewish Zionist. Mm, mm. And, and that's, that was a, uh, a familiar tone to Israeli ears uh, coming from Biden from many years. Would you say that? Absolutely. Uh, only this time. Uh, it was reinforced with very, very powerful action. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you mentioned, the dispatch of the area, uh, um, um, the carrier task forces, the nuclear submarine, the warning to third parties, the uh, support package in Congress, the airlift. I mean, munitions that Israel is using today arrived from the U.S. two, three, four days ago. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... so uh Familiar and steadfast language, but also followed by almost immediate action. Point well taken, uh, Mr. Novik. And, and Ambassador Hale, I promise I will call you David eventually, but Ambassador Hale, same question to you because, um, you know, political language is always exquisitely important, but perhaps no more so than after, you know, a devastating event like this. There was a lot on the line regarding what the president said on that trip uh, to Israel. I mean, how would you also um, analyze the particular language that he used in expressing his support for Israel? Well, I thought it was absolutely essential uh, that he uh, do what he did. And I think it's very much characteristic of, uh, as you described, his philosophy toward the relationship. Although I, I would say that I think almost, I can't conceive of an American president after the wake of what happened on October 7, not saying uh, taking a similar approach of, of uh, absolutely stalwart support for Israel at a time of enormous uh, emotional uh, and security stress. So um, glad it was done. Um, and I think, as Nimrod pointed out, actions also are very important. And one of the things that the administration focused on really from day one was our role in messaging in the region uh, against escalation. And so, again, if if the president had not taken a strong rhetorical stand he t- did take, and if he had not committed the uh, military actions that we took, you would have had a crisis in the relationship with Israel, and you would have had Israel wondering who had its back and what was going to happen in the region. And then you, you had the risk of, a, of an escalatory cycle. Now, Iran and its proxies were doing precisely that and have continued to escalate, but it could have been much worse if we had not uh, conducted that early messaging through all channels and through actions. Yeah. So this is a really, really important point, um, David, and I'm glad you brought it up. And that is, this was in the immediate aftermath of that terrible day on October 7th. So nothing short of very strong, supportive language it would have been likely to come from uh, any president of the United States. Uh, but the other thing that interests me is at that time, uh, that time being what, just two months ago, in fact, two months ago to the day, um, the uh, entire administration definitely fell in line behind President Biden and his approach to taking a close embrace of Israel. The fact is that that seems to have changed uh, in the subsequent two months, and we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit later in the show. But Nimrod Novik, I do want to spend a few minutes going back in time and discussing a little bit about where 
Biden's seemingly kind of unwavering support for Israel that he has publicly declared over the past many decades, where some of its origins might be. And I understand that one of them, and in fact, this is because Biden himself has talked about it quite a deal, uh, quite a great deal, comes from a 1973 meeting that then Senator Biden, I think he was just in his 30s, uh, a meeting that he had with uh, former, now late, Prime Minister Golda Meir. Um, do you know about what happened at that meeting, and uh, Nimrod, and why it's so important to Biden himself? It's almost impossible not to know when uh, President Biden likes to repeat the story on every occasion, including during his uh, various meetings in Israel when he, when he was here uh, recently. Um, and yes, uh, the story is told, or the way uh, he recalls it, is that um, after the 73 war, he uh, asked uh, Prime Minister Meir, uh, where, uh, this, what's the source uh, of strength of this small country in such a hostile, huge neighborhood? And reportedly, Golda Meir responded, uh, the source of our strength is a single fact. We have nowhere else to go. Mm. That seemed to have had a powerful impact on on uh, young Senator Biden, which he, which is not it doesn't seem to have changed at all, uh, regardless of the uh, you know the various conflicts and uh, the evolution or the change in this in the state and government of Israel in the subsequent many decades. Nimrod, yeah, he he he. Um, um, I don't want to say claims because I, I trust that uh, that's the story. Uh, he says that. Um, it, his commitment to 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 Israel um, was born uh, at his father's at his parents' home. Mm. Uh, the the education, the way he was brought up, um, was to believe in the right of uh, the Jewish uh, people uh, for self determination, uh, and that the main superpower of democracy and freedom uh, should uh, support it. Uh, but yes, he, he, uh, his relationship um, with Israel as senator, uh, his his record is impeccable in terms of uh, voting record of everything that uh, is supportive of Israel. As vice president, um, he even surprised some of us uh, because there was an incident when he landed here as vice president and was welcomed by the then still Netanyahu. Um, announcing uh, the government announcing major uh, settlement construction at the time that this was uh, an anathema to the uh, um, Obama Biden administration. Uh, he was furious. He went back home, flew back, um, and in the deliberation, from what we heard from the deliberation in the White House, he was the one who suggested the soft approach, whereas uh, pr the president and others thought that uh, Netanyahu should be uh, taught a lesson. Uh, that's not how you welcome the vice president of the United States. Well, so we're going to talk more about that division or the rift between uh, then Vice President Biden and uh, then President Obama. But uh, David Hale, we've just got about 30 seconds before we have to take our first break. I mean, do you see that same resonance that Nimrod was talking about from uh, uh, Biden's early, that early meeting in his career with uh, Golda Meir? Oh, sure. I mean, I think that uh, it shows the value of uh, travel by senators and congressmen because they are often in office for a very long time and they build these relationships 
that are very personal. But it's not all about personality. I think we also have to bear in mind we have very important interests at stake in this relationship, and the president knows that well. Yeah, so what I'm curious to hear from both of you later on is that it seems that uh, uh, President Biden and former presidents of the United States have linked American security to this existential question that Israelis themselves uh, uh, have to live with every day and whether that actually that link is uh, actually appropriate now. So we're talking today about President Joe Biden's uh, close relationship with the Israeli government and signals that maybe his administration wants that to change in the past couple of weeks. We'll be back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash On Point today to get 10% off your first month. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're talking about President Joe Biden's very tight embrace of Israel and whether over the past couple of weeks we've been seeing within his own administration some rumblings about whether that approach, the Biden approach, is working. I'm joined today by Nimrod Novik. He's former senior policy advisor to Prime Minister former Prime Minister Shimon Peres, and now he's the Israel Fellow at the American Jewish Bipartisan Organization, the Israel Policy Forum. And Ambassador David Hale joins us as well. He's served in uh, very high positions, diplomatic positions all over the Middle East. He's currently a fellow at the Wilson Center and author of the forthcoming American Diplomacy Toward Lebanon. Well, well, gentlemen, for the the bulk of this segment, I do want to go back a little bit in time and talk about what uh, Nimrod, you had mentioned, was the differences in, in opinion and approach between then Vice President Joe Biden and President Barack Obama. So let's start with a clip from May of 2011. And this is when Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who was Prime Minister of Israel at that time, uh, followed with a break thereafter, and of course now is Prime Minister once again, when he visited uh, the White House. And he basically, during a press conference, gave something of a lecture to President Obama for seven long minutes in the Oval Office, and the news cameras were rolling, and Prime Minister Netanyahu seemed to be sort of schooling President Obama on uh, the basics of the Middle East conflict. And if you look at the, the TV footage of this moment, you can pretty clearly see that uh, President Obama, even though he tried to always act in a no-drama way, I mean, his face was was communicating anger. So here's a, a little bit of their exchange, and it starts with Netanyahu followed by Obama. I can only express what I said to you just now, that I hope he makes the choice, the right choice, of choosing peace with Israel. Uh, our ultimate goal has to be uh, a 
secure Israeli state, a Jewish state, living side by side in peace and security with a contiguous, functioning, uh, and effective Palestinian state. Obviously, there are some differences between us in the precise formulations and language, uh, and that's going to happen between friends. So, Ambassador David Hale, how would you describe what the Obama administration and specifically President Obama's approach was to Israel throughout his presidency? Well, Meghna, I was in the room uh, in the Oval Office when that conversation occurred. Um, I had uh, replaced George Mitchell, if I can use that phrase, replace a great man, um, uh, who had left office as special Middle East envoy after two frustrating years. Uh, But I think, frankly, we had reached uh, the end of a long trail at that point, and uh, the president's frustration level was, was sky high. Um, I was in the back of the room with the senior delegation, and you could see steam rising from their ears. Uh, so that kind of lecturing, as you said, from the prime minister uh, did not go over well. I would say that to answer your question, President Obama had a very cerebral approach to the issues. Uh, he, he was not one who uh, naturally developed warm relations. Certainly it was not a match made in heaven between him and Netanyahu. They had very different world philosophies. But um, I think that President Obama is getting a little bit of a bum rap here in that uh, he, he was very committed to the relationship with Israel and the the strength and depth of the security relationship in particular mm. during the uh, eight Obama years was really quite phenomenal, despite uh, the differences we had over negotiations of the Palestinians and very acute differences over the conduct of our policy toward dealing with the threat of Iran. Um, nonetheless, we we built a partnership that I think uh, anyone who knows anything about it uh, values greatly. Mm. Well, um, I'm going to ask you more about that cerebral approach in just a minute. But since uh, you reminded us, and I appreciate this a lot, that you were in the Oval Office on the day, on that day in May of 2011, when you were looking at the president, I mean, I was just giving you my impression of what I saw on the television footage. But when you were looking at the president, given that you you know him and worked with him, what did you see in his response? Well, as I said, I, I, I felt that uh, it was unexpected um, and no one likes uh, these. These tend to be fairly scripted uh, uh, moments. And so there was an element of surprise uh, that, as you said, the president was obviously putting his game face on. But I think, again, he frust- the frustration that he felt, not just at that moment with Netanyahu, but over the overall situation, including with the Palestinians, was was really very, very tangible. And we had just gone through this crisis with the Israelis. As, as Nimrod mentioned, I was there mm-hmm. with the vice president in Jerusalem in March, uh, a few months before. Uh, we did work things out quietly. Um, we did get up a no surprises uh, methodology between me and a counterpart in Jerusalem. Uh, so we didn't have any more of that going on. But there just had been so much rockiness in the relationship. And then to have that happen not good. Yeah. But the important thing, you know, we we had, you know, in coming back to, to today, um, I don't think the president ever wanted to have daylight evident between him and Netanyahu. And uh, despite these differences, he would always, in my p- estimation anyway, focus on what's valued in the relationship, and what's needed to bring peace and stability to the Middle East. And he cared greatly about the Palestinian cause. When I was ambassador, if I could just take another half minute. Please do. I was ambassador to Jordan when he came out as a senator. Um, and we had every, this was during the Iraq war. Jordan was kind of a platform for a congressman to, to travel and others into Iraq. So almost everybody you ever heard of, uh, passed through my door. 
he was the only one who, instead of just seeing the Jordanian leadership, asked to go to a Palestinian refugee camp out of hundreds of visitors like that. So this was someone who, who really cared deeply about finding a solution. And again, the frustration that for two years he'd been unable to reach that goal was, was sky high. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Nimrod Novik, I'm going to come back to you in just a moment. But uh, uh, Ambassador Hill, one more question about, you know, the... Uh, the personal relationship between these two leaders. And, you know, I very, very, very much sympathize that perhaps relationships are not the right place to focus because it's the policy that comes out of those relationships that matters most. That's generally where we tend to focus on this show. But, of course, if a lot of that policy is shaped by how two world leaders interact, I think it's worth understanding a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, overall... It's not. I'm curious not just how about how President Obama viewed uh, Israel or the overall Middle East conflict, but did he ever share with you his views of Benjamin Netanyahu specifically? I think. Well, I I don't want to quote the president. Uh, you leave that to him. But I, all of us who worked on this issue at a senior enough level, were well aware that uh, he was. He was very, very uh, frustrated with the Israeli approach. And we were trying, and the Israelis were equally frustrated with us. They really didn't think that Abu Mazen was going to respond to the settlement freeze, which the president had set out as a precondition and took us nine months to negotiate. And they really didn't like the fact that the U.S. administration was constantly lecturing them about how we would take care of Iran. Don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. We'll keep you briefed. Meanwhile, your job is to work on a two-state outcome. And that was not an equation that that particular Israeli government felt comfortable with. Wow. Okay. Well, Nimrod Novik, here's my question for you about uh, uh, the Obama approach to Israel and how that was viewed by Israelis, of course. Uh, Because in that clip that we played, uh, you heard President Obama say that, you know, the ultimate goal is a secure Israeli state. And then he goes on to say, not just living side by side in peace, uh, with is- that the Palestinians shouldn't get the opportunity to live only side by side in peace with Israel. But he uses specific language. He says, a contiguous functioning and effective Palestinian state. How, does, uh, how did uh, Obama's view on what, uh, what he would like to see for the Palestinian people fall on Israeli ears? Well, you know, Israel <clears throat> is hardly homogeneous. Uh, yes. I belong to the school where his words were music to our ears. Uh, but that was not the school that was running the country at the time, as David noted. Um, and the government uh, did everything great. I should say the prime minister first and foremost. Uh, in Israel, the prime minister is very, very powerful. Uh, the system is not that strong as we've seen in the last year um, with, with a judicial coup that we almost went through. Um, So the prime minister is very powerful and the prime minister is hostile to the idea of a contiguous uh, Palestinian state, which means no settlements and withdrawn of those that interfere with that contiguity. Um, So um, from day one, uh, this prime minister anticipated problems uh, with a liberal Democrat um, of the school of uh, President Obama and joined with the American right in discrediting him even before uh, he was sworn in. Um, using his middle name, uh, Hussein, as 
to in, to to uh, suggest that that uh, that he might be either Muslim or inclined toward sympathy. Um, there was a campaign to discredit President Obama even before he took office. Um, and because Netanyahu is so astute at public manipulation, it worked. Mm. Mm. Okay. Wow. Um, I mean, Americans are f- familiar with this with a similar campaign that took place uh, on the American political right uh, as well here. But it is uh, quite bracing to be reminded that the Israeli right also uh, tried to or looked askance upon the Obama presidency. But uh, regarding... Uh, President Barack Obama's view of uh, the Palestinian people. I just want to play a quick clip here because both of you had had mentioned this. Um, This is from March of 2013 uh, when President Obama gave a speech to an auditorium filled with Israeli university students. Now, of course, the Israeli government itself, as we have explored in the past few minutes, had very, very different views about settlements, uh, and uh, the uh, uh, the West Bank and Gaza. But here is uh, the response of what that President Obama got from the students that he was speaking to. And put yourself in their shoes. Look at the world through their eyes. It is not fair that a Palestinian child cannot grow up in a state of their own. living their entire lives with the presence of a foreign army that controls the movements, not just of those young people, but their parents, their grandparents, every single day. It's not just when settler violence against Palestinians goes unpunished. So then came 2014, um, and as both Nimrod and David have mentioned, when Vice President Biden went to Israel and... Uh, the announcement of radical settlement expansion really caught him off guard and, and angered him. So, uh, Ambassador Hale, you said you were on that trip. Tell us a little bit more about Biden's, you know, response and um, how that then factored into the Obama administration's approach as a whole. My recollection is that it was in May 2011. And, oh, OK. My, my apologies. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, it was... Of course, after we had more or less, we're, we were giving up on a negotiation the president had invested himself in a fair amount, uh, at least uh, intellectually. And uh, Biden landed and George Mitchell, who was still in office, and I joined him at the King David Hotel for the usual pre-visit briefings. And uh, then Mitchell got on a plane and went back to Washington, and I stayed there to support the, the, the visit, although the vice president's people were, were obviously more, more uh, and closer to him. And it was obvious, as we, the meetings began, this announcement of 1,200 housing units being started in Jerusalem uh, was re- totally contrary to our expectations, a complete surprise. Uh, but the, the vice president took it, he just, he just took it in stride. And uh, he, my recollection anyway is in both our private briefings and in the public statements, he addressed it with some equanimity. He said, yeah, this is bad, um, but we have to deal with our problems in private and we'll sort this mm-hmm. out in public and then we'll make sure there are no more surprises in the future. And so I, Nimrod's, I'm not challenging Nimrod's version that there, was, there were differences within the, the camp, but uh, the policy was kind of set on the fly, which sometimes happens in moments of emergency like this with the vice president there and confronting this and having to work with the Israeli leadership right there and then. 
And uh, as I said earlier, I, I stayed behind to work out the, the logistics of communication once that had been agreed, which I remember as being pretty quick. And there was an acknowledgement on the Israeli side that, yep, we shouldn't have surprised you. Mm. And we worked a lot to develop a better understanding of how uh, housing units are decided in Jerusalem, uh, which in some cases the Israeli officials themselves didn't fully appreciate. But one thing I want to mention, because I think it's important, is, you know, by this point, President Obama had still not visited Israel. Uh-huh. So you talk about personalities and emotion and image. And it wasn't, my recollection is, it wasn't until the spring of 2012 um, that he went. And he, I was at, the, he had a, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu had a, a uh, dinner for him, which was very warm, actually. Uh, uh, the, the atmosphere was, it was very small. The atmosphere was very positive. They were clearly working on their relationship. So again, I, I, just, I don't want to leave people with the impression that this was, this was an unworkable situation. Mm, mm. It was something both wanted to make work. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Uh, N- Nimrod Novik I'm wondering, we can't know for sure because none of us are inside Joe Biden's brain, right? I mean, it's all to a certain degree speculation. Um, But when uh, Israel uh, decided to go forth with the construction of uh, those uh, those apartment buildings, I mean, it's it's proof that there's no, you know, no matter how powerful or influential the United States is, right? There's no there's no vassal state of uh, uh, out there that's just going to automatically do what any American administration wants. But I think the presumption was that uh, the close relationship between America and Israel means that you know some sort of uh, you know diplomatic uh, warning would be given or. Uh, the idea that perhaps there would be discussions beforehand so that the Americans could say could uh, to gauge how much they'd support it or uh, you know potential impacts. It seems like that didn't happen. Do you think that there's any uh, evidence that uh, Joe Biden came away from that meeting thinking uh, maybe we should be a little bit more cautious about how we how much we trust, especially a Netanyahu government? Look, uh, as an Israeli, I, I'd rather focus on uh, trying to uh, understand the implications on this side of the uh, of the ocean. That is to say, um, when something like this happens, that at least publicly embarrasses the hell out of the vice president of the United States and the American administration, our greatest friend and ally, the one we are totally dependent upon for virtually everything, uh, yeah, we are a sovereign country and we make the decisions ourselves. But to ignore American interests, to do it in such a blunt way, and worst of all, in my judgment, and get away with it. Mm. I mean, the very fact that David managed to work out a mechanism to avoid such occasions in the future um, was well worth it. But what is the lesson learned by Netanyahu? Ah. Uh. You can really defy Washington and get away with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that is a very, very powerful place for us to take a quick break because the consequences of that is exactly what we want to talk about when we come back. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. 
But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. I just want to take a quick moment to talk about what we will be having on the show tomorrow. And I'm going to do that by asking you a question. If you've got any land, small backyard to larger acreage, have you decided to stop working that land, to stop trying to make your garden grow the way you want it, or, uh, again, that larger acreage? And have you just decided to let nature do what she pleases? It's called rewilding. And I want to know if you've done that, what has changed? What have, how have you seen that land change? And how have you seen your relationship with that land and its inhabitants change? So send us your stories via the On Point Vox Pop app. If you don't already have it, go to wherever you get your apps and look for On Point Vox Pop. You can also call us at 617-353-0683. So we're looking for stories of your efforts to rewild your land. That's for tomorrow. Today, clearly, we are talking about President Biden's approach to uh, Israel under the Netanyahu government and also in the midst, of course, of the Israel-Hamas war. Nimrod Novik is with us, and so is Ambassador David Hale. Um, Moving into how, uh, if and how the Biden approach has changed over the past uh, couple of months from that initial very clear, um, strong, ironclad support that the president uh, enunciated after all. October 7th. I mean, Ambassador Hale, let me quickly ask you, what do you think uh, the administration's successes have been in the past couple of months uh, with uh, the Biden approach as we've seen it so far? Well, the successes uh, are clearly the the, uh, the strong relationship with Israel is, is even stronger. And I think there's widespread, Nimrod can address it, but widespread appreciation for the integrity and 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 uh, stalwart nature of that. The second, I think they've done a good job in uh, building support in the G7 and for that that approach, um, even though as always there are there are voices that would like to see a ceasefire. Immediately, I think the administration's done a good job in communicating to them that a ceasefire that doesn't actually result in eliminating Hamas's ability to fight is no real ceasefire that's worth having. Um, harder t- to tackle the um, the question with Arabs and with others about what the day after is going to look like, and that you know that really is where the American role uh, should be strongest is shaping what comes next, and that uh, obviously the diplomacy is not going to be too public, but we haven't seen yet, at least I haven't seen yet, a workable concept that's going to meet uh, Israeli security needs. And uh, and build lasting stability. Mm. Well, Nimrod Novik, uh, there are other things specifically that have happened in the past month or so that uh, we in the public can point to as as temporary successes, right? Of course, we had the release of some hostages in exchange for the release of uh, Palestinian prisoners. There have been humanitarian uh, supplies or trucks that have been that have entered Gaza. Uh, 
And, um, you know, we, we did have those pauses for a little while. And these are specific things that, that Biden himself and the administration um, have, have asked for and helped work towards. But there are other things that, that simply there, there seems to be no progress on, right? The, the United States and lots of other countries are asking very vociferously now for uh, the Israeli military to try to avoid civilian casualties in Gaza. And uh, then there's also the question of reining in settlers. Um, uh, what what do you make of that? Has has Benjamin Netanyahu been just very uh, point blank resisting those particular uh, requests? I wish he were resisting them for good reasons. <clears throat> I'm afraid that's not the case. Um, let me put it this way. Um, on day one, day two, day three, after the horrific, uh, uh, brutal uh, Hamas uh, butchering of, of Israelis in, in our south, there was no daylight, as you noted, no daylight between the Biden administration and the Netanyahu government. Uh, but here we are, day 60, 61, and we have two clusters of major differences, and the administration can no longer keep them uh, private and even accentuate them in an effort to get some move on the Israeli side. Uh, one is um, operational on the conduct of the war, and, and both you and David mentioned it, uh, the humanitarian relief that uh, Netanyahu was so stingy and still is very stingy about, uh, the humanitarian corridor that he resisted and eventually accepted, um, the, the, the issue of uh, uh, the way uh, the IDF conducts itself in terms of uh, uh, civilian population and uh, non-combatants um, and, and, and so on. And that's about the conduct of the war. And at the same time, things are going from bad to worse in terms of uh, Jewish terrorism uh, on the West Bank, threatening to ignite that area as well. Uh, but there is also a cluster of strategic issues. I mean, here we have the administration uh, putting together uh, a concept that is supposed to pacify and stabilize Gaza for the morning after, mm. concurrent with, with stabilizing the West Bank and launching something long term uh, uh, of, of a political horizon over there, um, both resting on two prerequisites. One, that it's all sponsored by the Palestinian Authority. Uh, initially, given its miserable state at the moment, initially symbolically, uh, granting legitimacy to whoever, th whatever third party uh, takes over Gaza after uh, the IDF withdraws. Uh, but eventually, after it rejuvenated a year, two, three, as long as it takes, uh, then the PA substantively takes over Gaza as well. Uh, and the second condition that every country that Secretary Blinken has approached to contribute to the morning after strategy, uh, they all have both conditions. One, it's sponsored by the PA, and two, it is part of a broader uh, political horizon, uh, political process. And on both of them, Netanyahu says no, um, and there's no go uh, for the morning after strategy as long as there's no change uh, in policy in Jerusalem. And I'm afraid that given Netanyahu's total dependence on the most extreme elements of Israeli society that he gathered together in his current coalition because they were the only ones who were willing to commit to help him find a way out of his legal predicaments. His total dependence suggests that uh, to change policy in Jerusalem, you got to change government. Mm, ah, okay. 
Well, you know, here, as as both of you well know, here in the United States, everything that Nimrod just described has has led to very, very high-level members of the Biden administration to um, say more and more directly about these uh, these aspects in which Benjamin Netanyahu is not compromising at all. Uh, in the, and this has especially, especially been happening, happening in the past uh, just a, a couple of weeks. So let me just uh, play a little bit of tape here from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Now, this first bit is going to be from last month when he flew to Israel for meetings with the prime minister and Israeli defense officials. And at that meeting, once again, he reiterated, reiterated the U.S.'s support for Israel's effort to defeat Hamas. I am here in person to make something crystal clear. America's support for Israel is ironclad. Now, this is no time for neutrality or for false equivalence or for excuses for the inexcusable. There is never any justification for terrorism. So once again there, you hear the defense secretary very clearly saying the United States supports the goal of Israel defeating Hamas. But the how that the Israeli military has been going about doing it, well, that's raised some more vocal criticism now from these same people we've been talking about. Because just a few days ago, in a speech to the Reagan National Defense Forum in California, here's what Secretary Austin said. You see, in this kind of a fight... The center of gravity is the civilian population. And if you drive them into the arms of the enemy, you replace a tactical victory with a strategic defeat. So I have repeatedly made clear to Israel's leaders that protecting Palestinian civilians in Gaza is both a moral responsibility and a strategic imperative. Here's one more. This is the United States Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. He was in Tel Aviv just a week ago, basically issuing the similar warning that the Israeli government should not move its operations towards devastating southern Gaza the way it has devastated northern Gaza. We discussed the details of Israel's ongoing planning, and I underscored the imperative of the United States that the massive loss of civilian life and displacement of the scale that we saw in northern Gaza not be repeated in the south. As I told the prime minister, intent matters. But so does the result. Ambassador Hill, presumably when uh, cabinet members speak out so clearly in public, it means that similar discussions have been going on for some time uh, you know, behind closed doors. But what's your read about the fact that now Austin, Blinken, and we heard the vice president, Kamala Harris, a little bit ago, saying these things out loud and so clearly now? Well, it's, it's obviously a coordinated messaging. Um, I think that the administration is remarkably disciplined uh, in this chapter. But, you know, I, I think I'd like to widen the aperture just for a second. Mm. That This is a pattern that we've all seen going all the way back to Ronald Reagan and Menachem Begin and the siege of Beirut. Uh, and it's utterly predictable, I think uh, it was anyway on October 7, that uh, we would have strong U.S. support that Israel would undertake uh, a really spectacular, uh, I don't mean that in a, a negative or positive way, but just a, a shocking offensive to deal with Hamas, that because of the asymmetrical nature of the conflict and the fact that Hamas was using Palestinian people as human shields, there would be very sizable casualties. We know this from past wars. And uh, all of this was utterly predictable. And we would know that um, it would only be a matter of weeks 
before public opinion outside Israel would start to turn on Israel and that that would create a political problem, not just a diplomatic problem for this administration, as we've seen. And you'd have to ask them whether that takes what extent the administration is addressing its own constituency as well as decision makers overseas. But, you know, the other the next predictable chapter is that when this conflict will end, that we will wake up one morning and it will be over. Um, but how are we going to deal with the day after when the actual protagonist here is Iran? You know, it's fine to talk about uh, getting the Palestinian Authority back into Gaza. It's fine to talk about the two-state solutions. It's not a moment in which you want to abandon those things. But they're irrelevant because we're dealing with Iran and its proxies here, as mm. is Israel. Mm -hmm. And they don't want peace. This, this is what that, the raison d'etre is to do everything to prevent us from achieving that goal. That's a point very well taken, Ambassador, because, of course, none, as you said, none of this is happening in a vacuum. There's a much larger diplomatic uh, issue, not just diplomatic, but security issue uh, to be dealt with here. But that's actually why um, the change in tone from the administration, if not the president himself, a lot and directly. That's why it's so interesting, I think, right now, because I want to play a couple of other uh, quick examples here. This is actually former President Barack Obama. He very recently spoke to a live audience. It was for a recording of the podcast, Pod Save America. And in this, uh, in this recording of the podcast, Obama said the solution for Israelis and Palestinians alike uh, is not for the U.S. to show absolute support for one side or the other. If you want to solve the problem, then you have to take in the whole truth. And you then have to... Admit nobody's hands are clean, that all of us are complicit to some degree. I look at this and I think back, what could I have done during my presidency to move this forward as hard as I tried? I've got the scars to prove it. But there's a part of me that's still saying, well, was there something else I could have done? Interesting. Obama, they're saying that to solve a what seems to be an intractable and terribly bloody problem, leaders have to admit nobody's hands are clean. Well, that didn't really meet with a lot of enthusiasm from the current Biden administration. They spoke out uh, with uh, expressing their respectful disagreement on that. But here's another voice that, uh, of many that have been increasing it, the, his criticism of uh, the Biden administration, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. And he last week had this to say about how the president has tried to influence Israel. The Biden administration has appropriately, and I applaud them for this, been trying to get the Israelis to be more targeted in their approach. But there is little evidence that they have succeeded. And the truth is that if asking nicely worked we wouldn't be in the position we are today. Asking nicely just is not going to bring about the kinds of changes that are needed. Nimrod Novik, we only have two minutes left. So what might the Netanyahu government or the prime minister himself feel that the United States could do, given this increasing criticism of the very close relationship uh, of the United States and Israel? Or... As you said earlier, if, if Netanyahu learned from the Obama administration that he can do what he wants with no consequence, does it matter how the U.S. changes its approach at all? Exactly. Um, you know, there is, there is the unavoidable and there is the avoidable. 
Uh, civilian casualties are unavoidable. And I believe, contrary to some criticism worldwide, uh, that the IDF is conducting, conducting itself uh, as carefully as any army ever uh, in that regard. Uh, the, the, the setting uh, is impossible. Uh, and I don't need to elaborate. You mentioned it earlier. Um, but what is, is, is avoidable is haggling over every truck of humanitarian assistance. I mean, the prime minister of Israel should have been the one who is leading, doubling the international demand for humanitarian supplies, humanitarian corridors, and all that. I mean, here is the administration telling the Israeli prime minister, we want to help you, but we need uh, you to help us help you. Uh, you need the time for the IDF to complete its mission. We believe in that mission, but en route, you got to do certain things that make it possible for us to help you. And here is the prime minister, totally dependent on more, most extreme elements of his coalition, chooses his coalition over his relationship with Washington and possibly the possibility of accomplishing the mission in Gaza. Huh. Well, Nimrod Novik... Former senior policy advisor to former Prime Minister Shimon Perez, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And Ambassador David Hale, he served in diplomatic posts all over the Middle East. He's currently a fellow at the Wilson Center and author of the forthcoming American Diplomacy Toward Lebanon. Ambassador Hale, thank you so much. Thank you, Megna. This is On Point.